<laughs> Bollocks. <laughs> Bollocks, that's an underutilized word. Hey everybody, welcome to the Sopranos Season 3 Retrospective. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we're really pumped to be here. These retrospectives are one of my favorite things to do on this podcast, record these, because we get to talk about Season 3 in its totality, what made it work, how awesome it was, pick out our top threes in a lot of great categories. I want to address the elephant in the room really quickly. We do not have Lily with us. She has been with us for the last two retrospectives. She had a family commitment and was unable to be here today. I know, so sad. This is the first retrospective we've done without Lily. Yes, yes. So... That's unfortunate, but we're going to make the most of it. Yeah, because... You know what, to make up for it, we'll add her into an extra episode of season four. Yeah, I love that idea. That's a good idea, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So, season three. We're we're done with season three. First of all, I, I mean, depending on how you want to categorize season six, because it's a two-parter, we're halfway through the story. Yeah. How do you feel about things? Season three, it's over. Just general thoughts on, on how you felt about three... How it started, how it ended, how it wrapped up, what it adds to the Sopranos mythos. Uh, for me, it's my favorite season so far. Interesting. For me, they keep getting better. Mm. Uh, I think I, I've done a little bit of reading, and people certainly seem to think, and I they're they're probably right, uh, that seasons one and two are more crafted, and um, seasons one and two also have the benefit of being self-contained. You can stop after you watch them, whereas season three leaves you on a cliffhanger. Things it's, are It's the first season that ends in a way that they're clearly setting up the next season. Right. It's like they shot season shot and wrote seasons one and two as if the show could be cancelled in any second. Yeah. So even though that's the case, and even though it feels a little incomplete at the end and maybe the stakes are not as high, this season had more for me at least, more impactful individual episodes that like I can't like ever forget. Mm. And some of those are kind of traumatic, but like I mean in a good way. I mean like TV that affected me so profoundly that I can't like get certain images, certain scenes out of my mind. And of course, I am certainly kind of uh, you know obliquely referring to things like University or Employee of the Month or Amorfu. But like these are, they'll live with me forever, and I appreciate that about them. I, I like that they're powerful, even though that they're sad or um, violent or whatever. Yeah, that's well said. My own take is that actually I think season one and two are both, I would say, probably more fun. That's the way I would look at them. But that's the that's part of the power here is that there's a there's something that happens here that I think is entirely conscious, where they are the show is still fun, it still has great funny moments that are playful, weird. They are making a decision in some of these episodes to deal with stories that are showing you some pretty bleak and ugly things about the world. And yeah. in the case of university, particularly about what these guys that are our heroes in the show, what they will countenance, and in fact, even what they breed, what they create in terms of an environment and how women are treated, etc. And I think that there it was gutsy uh, in terms of what they did, even if the season had not clicked and worked as well. I would still have to give credit like, man, they really went for it. But they went for it, and I think it really works. Yeah. And I think the show takes a step in terms of that irony and the use of bleak humor. Um, another example that I'm going to come back to in this retrospective is Tony telling off Noah. Not only the balls to do that scene, but the balls to make it funny. It is funny. Mm. So the show is taking a step here. It owes a lot to the first two seasons for laying down the track for it. And there's new 
ideas. There's new concepts and there's new characters that are fun. Um, the having to deal with a character who, in some ways, is like Richie Aprile, but ends up being both a better gangster and a more useful person. So instead of figuring out how to get rid of them, you have to figure out how to live with them mm. is actually maybe the most interesting place the show could go. This season also, another thing, just a personal thing, and maybe it's just a sentimental choice, but it has my favorite single storyline of the whole series. The Gloria Trillo story? The Gloria Trillo story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not, I mean, there's so many wonderful stories, but I just think this one clicks. I love also how in some ways it's almost an accident I don't think Gloria Trillo would have been in this season if Nancy Marchand hadn't have died. I think that Gloria Trillo steps in to fill this void in which they were going to do a story where Livia was maybe the witness for the prosecution. Mm. She died, that story's gone. Yeah. Then you resurrect this figure and it helps Tony, it points Tony toward figuring out some things about himself. Yeah, that's the only other comment I would offer in just trying to um, give a season the shape uh, that it needs acknowledging the death of Nancy Marchand and uh, the loss of that character. Huge, uh, you know, it, it's huge. It, it and it could have, in less competent hands, really dovetailed the show. It could have ruined the yeah. show, actually. Yeah. But for me, season three, it ends up hitting. It's it's a big hit for me, but it's off such a wild pitch because Mr. Ruggiero's Neighborhood and Prussia Lavushka, the first two episodes of this season the combined two that I believe you said aired on the same evening mm. uh, when they first aired, it's a, that's a wild pitch to start your season off of. Like, I don't know what the water cooler was like on the Monday after that double, because they're both so bizarre. One is so light and so odd, and the other is so dark and so brooding. And this is your start, you know? <laughs> yeah. Odd, odd. It's not till uh, episode three that the season, uh, was that Fortunate Son? Fortunate it's not so fortunate, son, that the season actually begins to regulate and you start to recognize it for itself again. Yeah. It's tough. Those first two episodes are really, really challenging pieces, and they're good. Uh, it's just, it is a peculiar opener. For my big take on season three, I tried to ask myself after finishing, why, when I think about the show, and we're going to honor our no-spoilers policy, so I'm not going to talk about seasons four, five, and six yet, but when I think about the show as a whole, three flies under the radar for me when I think about my favorite seasons. And I wonder why, because anytime I actually watch season three, I'm riveted. I, I fully agree with everything you guys have just said. So why does season three fall kind of under the radar for me when I think about the show in its totality? It's because in many ways it is a transitional season from what the show started as to what it becomes as it reaches the end. And without spoilers, what do you think the transition is? A more mature, stark look at what this slice of life is. I think... Stark in terms of like something more existential or... Yeah, the show is able to take more risks at this point. And the premise was already risky. Let's not take anything away from seasons one and two, right? The show was already a gamble. But this show is now cemented into the American culture by season three. David Chase, I imagine at this point, must HBO must be like, okay, yeah, you do it, you do your thing. We're gonna we're gonna just sit back here and oh, he's and, and he's Ace Rothstein, he's the yeah. money machine. Do yeah, what exactly. you want to do. Yeah. So I feel like this is really them. Also, the idea that they didn't know in season one, especially if this was going to catch on or there were going to there was going to be more of it. So the reason three feels in some ways like a transitional season even though there are there is a beginning middle and end there you know it's just not as clean in that way as the first two were 
right? There is this sense to me that there's an acknowledgement, okay, we're in this for the long haul. HBO would have this go forever if they could. Sure. So in the grand scheme, what is the story we're telling here? What pieces do we need to set? That said, the highs of this season are so impactful and so brutal. So, look, if if you were to show somebody, again, no spoilers on specifics, but if you were to show somebody season one who had never seen The Sopranos and then show them season six, visually, tonally, it's two different shows almost. They don't feel like the same thing. Sure. Three begins the process of taking it from its... And that's because the people involved are artists and they grow and things change and people's moods change, the world changed. We're going to talk today about how uh, three is the last pre-9-11 season and then you know when we record our season four episodes, we're going to talk about how that might have changed some of the cynicism underneath the show. And this is also, at its core, a show about America and 9-11 is a very pivotal thing that happened dead smack in the middle of this thing. So... It's all over it. So that's my take on season three. That said, I agree with everything you guys said. It's an amazing piece of work. I think they recovered from the Marchand death. Not only recovered, but teed up another way to go and knocked it out of the park. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Nancy Marchand, she dies. And we we did criticize the now dated and awful CGI (sighs) movie ahead. it's still bad. Yeah, yeah. I get why they felt maybe they should do it, but it was sure. a miss. That was a miss. That we a... actually, we got some fan mail, uh, I should say, we got some hate mail about how much, I think in particular, I complained about <laughs> Prussia Lavushka as an episode, but also especially the CGI. Listen, I, I can't help it. I don't think it makes it a bad episode. I think that's a wonderful episode. I just, uh, it's a wild pitch, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, that one-two punch of Rogerio's and Prussia Lavushka's is off. That CGI seems real bad. No one can really convince me otherwise. And uh, it's like maybe the show's one misstep. Like, okay, I'm over it, is what I'm saying. It's mm. a, we don't have to dwell. I apologize if I offended anybody. <laughs> uh, it's a really good episode. Uh, I was just really bummed out by that. But you know what? I wasn't bummed by, like, the show. I was bummed because it makes me think of things in my own life that are unpleasant. And, you know, I feel bad that this woman died. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nancy Marchand. Yeah. And, and I... I Except this was the best way they thought to handle it, and it's fine. It, 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 brings, is what it, it is. brings the real question to the table, which is if a podcast host apologizes, not on Twitter, was it really an apology? No, <laughs> no, and I'm still canceled. Actually, I, I, I'm canceled and I can't get a job anywhere. Damn it. We'll, we'll put Jordan's voice in through CGI. Right. And it'll be really, really bad. Thank you. So, so yeah, what would this season, how do you think the season would have been? different if Nancy Marchand was still around. I know that's pointless to speculate. I know David Chase has mentioned that there was talk of her being a witness, and that would have probably been a major thrust of the whole season. Supposedly, some kind of reconciliation might have been on the table. We're all writers, so I think we can see the hallmarks of, like, where she might have been used otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. I agree with Paul. I think, you know, the Gloria Trillo... Sorry, Gloria Trillo plotline probably only comes about because of Nancy Marchand's passing. I don't think you bring back Janice this early. She had such a good exit in mm. two, mm. and she comes back so soon in season three. Mm-hmm. And it's like we're trying to basically... I, I Nothing against the show. Nancy Marchand is such a huge presence. Like, that. Olivia as a character is such a huge presence. You can't recreate her. The best you can do is sort of 
recreate her in the aggregate, right? Sort of like put in a bunch of different characters that are all going to make up the essence of her. Mm-hmm. And they do an amazing job. Yeah. Uh, Janice is still really great in this season. Gloria's the fucking best, arguably one of the best things in the season. It's like her and Melfi for me. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, they, they did a great job. I, I think probably... Uh, I, uh, I, don't, I don't know where the Livia character would end up, but I, I think Tony has to show up, show down with her. Yeah. I think he has to meet his real enemy and move through that, you know, maybe in a more crafted version of her death where she gets to really say something to him at the end. Yeah. Really say something. It's a different, it would be a different, whole, wholly different show, in my opinion, if that happened. Uh, it really would. It's, it's a little, I think also as a writer, it can be a bit hard for me to conceive of it because it would have been a challenge not that it's one that they couldn't have met but i think it would have been a challenge to not repeat themselves Mm. what happens when nancy marchand died and livia dies is yes she's dead but and i'm going to stay away from spoilers but i mean people lose parents and it's not over Mm -hmm. even when tony thinks it's over in the therapy session and so she's dead right we're we're probably done done here Yeah. yeah Um, people go on years and years. I, I had a talk with my mother once about her mother being dead 20 years, but things still come back to her. And that's with a mother that she got along with fairly well. Yeah. So this is going to stay with Tony. It's just, and the form that it takes in this season, I thought was particularly effective. On, in terms of the overall question that Chris brought up about the show's existentialism and digging into some of these questions, I think, I do think it was a big step. And I think the show has gotten better and better as it's gone on. I don't think it was in any way bad or failing in like the first season. But the humor, I just think, has gotten better. The humor in the first <laughs> season is like, uh, uh, who's pussy? My, my pussy, your pussy. It's good. These jokes are better. Mm. We know the characters more. I think the writers have gotten more confident as it's gone on. And there's a shorthand with the audience once, yeah. you, once you've been around for a little while. Yeah. Right. That's what sure. we mean when we say maturing. Not that the first two seasons are immature in a juvenile sense, but maturing in the sense that there becomes a language. A story is told in a way that it becomes its own language. It's like you put somebody in an audience for a Shakespeare show that has never seen Shakespeare or studied Shakespeare. First ten minutes, like, what the fuck is going on? But eventually, if it's done right, you start to piece it and you start to understand it and it becomes something... So a story is told in its own language, and I think that's what I mean when I say the show matures in this season in a way that is interesting, is that the shorthand is there. You get how this world works. You get who these people are. Now where are they going? Yep. With that said, where are we going? I think it's time we should kick off with one of our top threes. Top Top three! Oh, yeah! Top three! Oh, yeah! I'm pretending to be Lily. Top three! Oh, rim shot! That was uncanny. That was better than the Livia CGI. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Top three music cues. And before we get into this quickly, folks, I do want to mention, and we fucked this up on our season two retrospective. We always fuck it. But I am determined to make it work this time. I'm, I'm... As the the executive producer of this podcast, (laughs) I'm going to make sure this structure works. Okay. Because we don't want to talk about 
our choices with each other ahead of time because that keeps the podcast spontaneous and exciting when we talk about our top three moments. Right. So, so what ends have, up happening... To be clear, is we have not shared this with, yeah, this with we, each other. Yeah, we don't talk about this with each other. We make our own private lists and say it to each other for the first time because it keeps it fun and exciting. Right. But that said, what ends up happening is you get this thing where somebody's number three moment is another person's number one moment and you blow it before you get to it and the person who has it as number one has probably more to say about it than if you have it as your number three and... It, it jumbles it. So what we're going to do this time is and like... I said we were going to do this last time, but okay. we didn't. All right. Mm -hmm. But we're going to do it this time. And yes. I will be okay. the structured Nazi here. Yes. We are going to go one by one, give our choices with no explanation behind the choice. Okay. And then talk about them. Okay. That way, if there's any overlap, we can cover it all in one conversation. Okay. Right? Make sense? Yeah. So... This is with no prep. No prep at no all. No prep. And listeners, before the show, we do a pre-show, but all we do is we we each take out our balls, and we show each other our balls, and that's the only prep we do. Hey, that's now it. Now, we, we have that on, on record now. It's on record. Okay. But I'm, I mean, not, I'm when, not cutting. I'm not when cutting I'm looking at Jordan and Chris's balls, I get excited, so it, it's, you know. It, Paul does get excited. It that's takes true. It takes a minute. Don't you dare cut this out. I will not cut this out. <laughs> no. you, you sunk your own ship. This is hey, listen, I don't have a job in a public school. <laughs> They don't care. <laughs> good, good. So, top three music. Do we want to go three, 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 two, 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 or do we want to go three, two, one, three, two, one, three, two, one? How do we want to do this? Do we all? Oh, I don't know. Wait, what do you mean? I mean, like, do I give my three? Jordan gives his three. Paul gives his three. Then we go to two, or does we go by person? I'll give my top three. You give your top three. Paul gives his. I like if we all do like our third choice. I think is fun. Great. Cool. So I'll start with my three. And, and this is no explanations. We're all no just going around. Number three. We're going to announce our, our choices. Okay, this will probably then double we'll, up a little bit. Then all right. we will discuss. Music cues. Music Bam. cues. Music cues. I do have an honorable mention. Some of these I have honorable mentions. Some of them I do not. For, on, my, for honorable mention, I want to cite The Captain by Casey Chambers, used mm -hmm. in the end of episode eight. He is risen. Mm -hmm. It's in the beginning of that episode as well, I think, right? Is It, it might be. Maybe. I, I know it's definitely at the end. Okay. But my number three... For music moments and cues, is Corre Ingrata, as performed by Dominic Cianisi <laughs> in the finale, Army of One. Uh, my number three, Ghost Riders in the Sky, uh, using the casino scene of He Is Risen. Ooh, the, um, okay. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll come back. Uh, all right, quick honorable mentions. I got a couple. One is called Gloria by the Belfast Gypsies, mm. which is just a cool pull from an Irish band that David Chase obviously listened to. Um... Plays in the beginning of Pine Barrens. Other honorable mention, Where's the Money, Where's the Dough, at the, from the end of Fortunate Son. Uh, number three, Music Cue, is No Music Cue, at the end of Employee of the Month. Mm -hmm. mm. Very nice. I like that. Your favorite one is an absence of music. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That is cool. That's cool. My number two is the Peter Gunn theme slash I'll Be Watching You combination used in Mr. Ruggiero's Neighborhood. My number two is Sad-Eyed Lady of a Low Life by A3, which opens Mr. Ruggiero's Neighborhood. Mmm, nice. Number two, Living on a Thin Line by The Kinks. Mm. Uh, played three times, top, middle, and... Uh, How the fuck did I miss that on my that's list? A really, that's a good one. I missed that, too. My number one, Sposa Son Disprezzata. It's a song used twice in the season... Once to take us out of Pine Barrens, and two to take us into a Morfu. I think it's the only time they did that. Right. Right. Uh, my number one, Sister Golden Hair by America, used in Another Toothpick. Oh. 
My number one is Return to Me, Bob Dylan, the end mm. of M.O.R. Fu. Very nice. So we don't have any double ups here. No that's doubles. very exciting. That's crazy. I don't think really that's ever nice. happened to us that actually, These lists speak to how fucking awesome and variegated the music cues are. Yeah. I picked three instead of like a top five, folks, for a reason. And it's because it's always very hard to narrow it down to just three. Yeah. But what inevitably ends up happening is it allows us to bring up so many different moments in the show in combination. So we have nine different things that we just mentioned here. And any one of them are valid in a top three, in my opinion. I didn't hear one of those and go, are you kidding me? <laughs> so, yeah. Anything you want to talk about on these? I, I I just thought the use of the Captain song, which was my number three, was a clever for that particular episode. It works in both ways. They're on a boat, but it was also the episode where Ralphie became the captain. And the lyrics work. And it made a song that I would never listen to on my own just as a personal music taste something that i listen to and think about the sopranos and yeah yeah so music is a category for us on this because it's so important to the show in much the way that food is david chase has such an eclectic knowledge of music because he personally picks any music that appears on the show i mean my god mm-hmm. you just like one minute you're listening to deep purple and the next minute it's you know Janice is listening to Ambrosius Sanders modeling. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? Craziness. Yeah. Uh, my number three was Ghost Riders in the Sky from He Has Risen. Um, it's it's more of a moment. It, it, the, the track is not really easy to hear in this scene. This is, of course, you know, there's been some building animosity between Tony and Ralphie. Of course, university has already happened, so it's already exploded. Things are boiling over. And um, the first time they really get to get back together is they happen to run into each other at the casino. And this is where... Uh, Ralphie refuses the drink. Yeah. Right, in that casino scene. And it's just a really cool parallel. We get a lot of parallels in this show between gangsters and cowboys. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the two people that have been um, set to oppose each other. Ghost Riders in the Sky famously is almost always used in Western films to be like, oh, we're, we're riding to the final showdown and mm-hmm. someone's going to die. And and this speaks to just the the wonderful anticipation play that is season three is that these two don't really get a showdown yet, you know, but it's already stirring. And that stirring, those stirring chords of Ghost Rider is really, really cool. Uh, so for three, I picked the no cue from End of Employee of the Month because it's such an effective moment. It's powerful. I think it's partly unexpected when Melfi just says no and it respects this kind of omerta that she has. And it, in some ways, I don't know, playing music at the end of that episode would almost feel like a lazy choice mm-hmm. or something. So that silence that that sits over, that clouds over the ending credits uh, is just so effective. I, I wanted to give it, uh, give it a shout out. So in this category, I thought it was an interesting space for it. Mm. I made a whoopsie. I talked about The Captain, which was my runner-up, but Corte Ingrata, I don't have much of an explanation for, except it's Dominic Cianese doing a beautiful job with a classic Italian ballot in an impactful moment at the end, memorable moment at the end of the season. Sure. We talked about, when we recorded that episode, maybe not loving or understanding fully the choice of having multiple songs layered on top of it to take us into the credits, but Junior himself singing it was moving and good, and I love Dominic Cianese. That's what that's about. My number two, the Peter Gunn theme, I'll be watching you. That's just cool. Uh, it worked for that episode. It kind of gave like the, the Peter Gunn theme. You associate it with 
cops and detectives and the spying element of it and then you yeah. tie that in with the song about stalking it adds a creepiness to it these are these guys are creeps they're staring at adriana and ogling her underwear <laughs> horrible yeah green was my fucking valley <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it worked on that level and it's a cool mashup a lot of times i've taken a lot of people through the sopranos and when they get what's being done with that music cue they always are like oh that's fucking cool yeah How they combine those so, nice job, Sopranos. I enjoyed that. Yeah, my number two was Sad-Eyed Lady of the Low Life, which is a song by A3, also known as Alabama 3, I guess. And um, this is a song that we hear briefly. It opens the season. It opens Mr. Ruggiero's neighborhood. It plays as Tony is walking down to pick up the paper. And um, it's got a really cool, kind of like a, it's just a kind of like a weird, grungy sound to it. It's not like a sound that you associate with the show. Mm. So, it, like, it, it already kind of sets you off. And also, just the lyrics to that song are really, really good. I mean, it's... So much of this season will speak to the lyrics that are in this song. The sad-eyed lady of the lowlife. You're the girl that's with the bad guy, right? How many of those are there in this season, right? Just a little bit of lyrics here. Sad-eyed lady of the lowlife, come on, burn a while with me. Put the high life on the bonfire, baby. Let's go steal some gasoline. I mean, mm. you know, speaking to so much that will happen, particularly later in the season, but... The, the danger that is for these women in the lives of these men. Well said. Indeed. Uh, Alabama 3, of course, as many people know, did do the main theme of the show. Just woke up. Oh, is that true? That woke up this morning is in a Alabama 3. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. Wow. wow. No. So they are deeply entrenched in... I didn't realize that. Yeah, wow. yeah. And Damn. speaking of the danger that they pose to young women, my number two is uh, <laughs> Living on a Thin Line. Oh, from University. Kinks, great band. Great band, great sound, it's perfect. Uh, the Sopranos actually doesn't do this as much. This is what's, uh, people pro might not care about this kind of detail, but um, diegetic versus non-diegetic sound. Hmm. Um, diegetic is naturally occurring sound. Non-diegetic sound is when you play something over the soundtrack. All three, all three instances of living on a thin line are diegetic. It is playing in the club, it is playing in the Bada Bing, which is so great because it is credibly a song that I would hear at a strip club. The lyrics, like what Jordan was just discussing, also reflect this ethos and this world and what the rules are and how you can't get out of it. And again, the precariousness of it, hence living on a thin line. I just love the use of it. It's got the scope of it. It's got the drama, the tragedy as well. It's a perfect choice. So well said. Paul, I zoned out for a second. Did you say you're diabetic? I did. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> no, excellently said. Very well uh, articulated. And Sposa son disprezzata. Uh, I love it because they use it in a cool way. They, I don't think they did this before, and I'm not 100% positive they do it ever again, where the same song that takes you out of an episode brings you into the next episode. I thought that was really clever usage because it carried... It plays while Polly is staring at the Pine Barrens as they're driving out, just this snowy, stark landscape, then pauses for this little addendum scene they have at the end of Pine Barrens with Tony and Melfi. And it, it it's an eerie-sounding aria. It's a lonely and cold-sounding aria. And it takes us into the museum at the beginning of a Morfu. So it carries that same energy. Yeah. It, it very much... You could watch these back-to-back in one sitting and it works and it just i think it's such a great use of that aria that tune 
And it's also something that could conceivably be playing in a museum like that, too. So it works on a practical level mm. as well. I just liked it. I thought it was a cool stylistic choice on the part of the directors of those two episodes and David Chase. So good job, Sopranos. I liked it. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I think that's a, a beautiful choice. Um, my number one is uh, Sister Golden Hair by America. Mm. Uh, this, of course, plays after Bobby Bacala Sr., played by Burt Young, has uh, successfully completed the hit he's been assigned, but also dies um, shortly thereafter. Um, he's asphyxiating. He, ha of course, has lung cancer or, uh, I guess, severe emphysema. And uh, he can't get to his inhaler in time. He crashes his car. He dies tragically. But uh, it's the... it's That whole sequence is amazing. It's one of my favorite sequences in the whole season uh, is the sequence from him arriving at the hit performing at the hit and then driving away from the hit I think is is so good. Burt Young is one of my favorite one-offs this season. Mm. I think he just did an amazing job. He's a great actor. He's like a cool legendary guy that you could bring in to do one episode. It's so cool. Um, I thought just like a great ending for him, but particularly the use of that song. Sister Golden Hair, of course, is a song about ruminating on the girl that you kind of can't get in touch with anymore and your best days being behind you, and but you always think about them anyway, you know? Mm. Um, and... To me, that final car ride, it could be interpreted multiple ways, but it, it seems to me to be so sad, but also very much victorious, right? Mm -hmm. I am useful again. I've completed a hit. I'm awesome. I'm smoking cigarettes and fuck the cancer that I have. I'm going to smoke them anyway. And I'm going to die like a gangster. And that's pretty cool. We talked about it when we recorded the episode. As far as gangster exits from this earth go. Yeah, pretty good. Doesn't get much cooler than that, actually, yeah. in a way. And, like, and the guys he kills, like, are pieces of fucking shit. So, yeah. like, you, like, feel really good about this character, you know? <laughs> yeah. And considering, like, ways you could die in this world... Yes. Really cool. He went out well. Mm. Well said. Uh, so, Return to Me, the Bob Dylan cover, uh, plays over the end of Amor Fu with the three guys coming back to their wives chris we've talked about how much we like this sequence yeah and i love the the use of music for a lot of reasons i mean it's such a classic tune um something about bob dylan's grady voice singing it has a nice vibe i love that it's a callback to the classic dino dean martin italian guy version which is briefly playing earlier in the episode so i love when the the, the theme loops around and it's just a, again like a playful fun and even funny take on these various situations that are filled with lies and obfuscation and hypocrisy so it makes for a really uh, powerful impact of that ending to um one of my favorite episodes of the show if not my favorite amorfu so that's why i chose it well done and with that that is top three music i love that we uh we all didn't pick any overlap, I like that. I hope that continues. that bodes well for the rest it, of this it, it uh, episode. Though I don't mind when we overlap. No, not at all. Well, that know. also speaks to the effectiveness of whichever ones get picked multiple times. So pivot here for a second. We're going to talk about top three characters and performances, but one of the rules for our top three characters and performances category is we exclude Tony. Correct. He's Tony's so, never included. Yeah, he's so powerful a character. It is his show. It's hard. You would have. He would be on the list every time. But that's it. Let's talk about Tony here and his journey through this season. Tony's larger thematic role in each season is changing. In the first season, we discussed him, Tony, as son, a surrogate son to Junior, a son to Livia, and that being the central conceit of the action. In season two, it's Tony as brother, brother to Big Pussy, 
brother to Janice and how that deals with the trouble that brews in that season. Season three centers on the on the idea of Tony as parent. Tony as you know a parent to Jackie, a, a mentor for Jackie, and also to his two kids. This is definitely the biggest presence of the children since the show started is season three. They both got a lot going on. First half is a lot of meadow with the situation with Noah, her starting college, and the back half is more AJ, his behavioral problems, his anxiety attacks, and Tony wrestling with the fact that his kids are becoming adults. He doesn't know how this is all going to go and whether he's going to succeed. And it's a struggle for the soul of his children. And based on what happens with Jackie, he might not like the results he gets. And he's nervous about that and it's catching up with him. So thoughts on Tony as a parent. And we can rope this into a discussion about Jackie because it's very relevant too. So let's talk about Tony with AJ Meadow, Jackie, and the fight for the soul of these people he's supposed to be looking out for and caring for. My inclination is first to comment that I think Tony as a parent is largely a failure in this season. Um, Certainly to Jackie. Abject uh, failure well, to Jackie. He, it's I, I not that he didn't of, try. I think but... it's across the board. Uh, if we want to briefly touch down, um, so I'll start with Christopher. Christopher gets made this season, and that's like his big thing, is like trying to live life as a made man. But Tony doesn't really do much mentorship of Christopher, and largely butts heads with Christopher in this season, and doesn't really help him to be a better made guy. And kind of like pawns him off on Polly, who's a terrible role model. Um, yeah. You know, so not good. His um, advice to Chris when he comes to Tony, which is what he was told to do during his making ceremony. You have any problems? You just got to talk to this guy. And Tony's answer is basically suck it up. Right. Go back to being abused and strip searched. Right. Not particularly good. (laughs) Um, Tony is not great with Meadow and obviously horrible to Noah, even though Noah sucks. Um, So not, not good there. Carmela bails him out of that one basically. And then it obviously fizzles out on its own. Tony with, uh, I mean, Tony with AJ is a disaster. It's almost the worst one, except the fact that we have Jackie Jr. this season. Um, he They have no uh, mission for AJ to succeed in life. Um, we, we have talked so much this season about how this kid has no future that is good for him, uh, about how he doesn't understand the nature of consequences, about how he doesn't understand how things are earned in this life or what he wants for himself, and... They actually go as far as to like get him in that military school uniform, which triggers a fucking panic attack. It's, it's a disaster. It's the worst parenting on the show, except for the fact that we also have Jackie Jr., who's looking for someone to be a father to him. And Tony really refuses to help him and indirectly causes his death. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really bad. It's about as bad as it gets. I uh, couldn't put it much better myself. <laughs> I think that, I guess the only thing that I would add is that Again, maybe adding to the show's mystique, this isn't just about gangsters, but it's about America. It's like, aren't gangsters funny? Well, isn't the human condition funny? Something that is changing now, I think, for the better, but is not true of uh, the last couple of generations, certainly among parochial Italians. (laughs) Carmela does the domestic work in this house, which includes tending to the children. So... Another factor about Tony's parenting is that it's on and off. He's always talking about when I come home. 
and what kind of house do I come back to? It's like, well, shit's been humming along when you've been out doing business. So he's always checking in and sometimes doesn't like what he sees. But again, how much if a character on The Sopranos is being confronted with how much they have committed to something, are they going to then fully commit or are they going to figure out which way to half commit? I think it's usually the second one. So there's that. Second, again, much more specific to the characters, how do you square your life with what you want for your kids? Tony does not want this for his kids. He doesn't want them near this. That was even true of Jackie. And part of the brick wall that he ran into with Jackie was literally being a mentor, a role model, and saying, don't be like me, which just didn't work. And in a similar way, even though it's not as outright stated, I think it's a similar trouble with AJ, um, except AJ is younger and might even be more wayward, just having a lot of trouble finding a place. So it's a complicated set of issues. And actually the most complicated might be the one with Meadow because she's the hardest one to fool. Mm. Um, that's the complication that comes up in Army of One. You can't just bullshit her. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to carry the show forward. So yeah, I think that there, it, it's, it's a lot of failure. But also, as in what we mentioned already about season three, it's up in the air. When season three ends... We, Meadow's gone back to school, we're not sure where that's going. I think there was even some uneasiness about the fact that Tony pulls AJ in close. Remember when they're listening to the music and Jordan said, that's not where AJ needs to be. He's pulling him in close. It's like, should he should like get away. Yeah. So that was, so it leaves me kind of feeling like rough. Mm. Uh, I want to see where it goes next. I'm not just feeling like completely defeated, but it does feel like pretty bleak. Tony's performance as a dad, not great. No. Not great. Was Jackie, from the point Tony got him, because let's look at Jackie Jr.'s journey for a moment. Not a character we see in season one, but we get his dad, Jackie. And we get a little bit of a sense somewhat of who he is. And a little bit more embellishment in the episode to save us all from Satan's power. We get to see a little bit more of that. So that's his situation. Jackie and Rosalie, what we know about them. Then the next time we encounter Jackie Jr. in our story chronologically, he's under Richie's arm in season two. Just at the very tail end of season two, he's palling around with Richie. Not a great start. Then Richie disappears. Tony pulls him in a little bit, tells him, listen, this hurt all of us. Your uncle was a rat, and this is not for you. Your dad didn't want this for you. Stay on the straight and narrow. Is he in school? Is he in med school? Is he flunking out? What's going on there? So... From the moment Tony gets his hands on Jackie, from that point, is it salvageable? Look at the pivot points and the decision moments. What could Tony have done differently to have steered Jackie away from this? Was Jackie already too far gone, I guess is my question. Was it more about managing a lost cause? Or did Tony really miss good opportunities to turn this kid around? I think the latter. I, I think um, I think Jackie was very, very savable. And I think that makes it more tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think no one really listens to Jackie. I know Meadow is kind of a whiny person, but she says some things that are really valid. Like, um, you know, he he needed somebody that was really going to listen to him and help him. You know what I mean? And, and no one really does that at any point. Like, when Tony tries to guide him, it's in this, like, very still sort of dismissive way. Don't be like me, don't be like me, stay on the straight and narrow. But there's no hand-holding, there's no guiding him along that path. 
you know, if anyone spent even an hour with Jackie Jr., 60 minutes, they would find out he's not a good candidate for Rutgers, he doesn't have the mind for medical school, but he can do other things. Okay, he wants to maybe have a career in fashion. What's wrong with that? Help him to do that. Or help him to have another job where he feels valued. Um, you know, help him to see that the mob life is not a good life for him for a specific reason. Do you know what I mean? Don't just be like, just don't do this. Do you know what I mean? It's just there's not enough of an explanation for him to show him why it's a bad idea. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think Tony gives him nothing but, like, tough love, and then it's, it's even worse when he's dating Meadow. It's just no one really stops to be like, listen, this is why you can't do this, because you end up dead. You know? Yeah. Uh, he just thinks it's because they don't want him around, or because it's not what his father wanted, but it's, it's actually a lot worse than that. He's not cut out for this. When you lie all the time, as these characters do, and I'm noticing this with some more recent episodes as well, it's hard because <laughs> it's so funny that I actually feel for the characters when they lie in some way because then what happens when, as Jordan has just posited, you come into this situation where a kid really needs you to be straight up with them. They need you to just tell them what's going on, tell them the truth, give them the straight dope. I think characters like Tony, they even think they're telling the full truth when they're not. Because when you lie this much, you delude other people and you delude yourself. So a lot of them are coming to this saying, oh yeah, I'm going to help Jackie Jr. But they give him some, again, like something that's sort of bland advice. Uh, it could be just by rote. And it doesn't do much. And it, so of course, and even Jackie being dumb knows enough to know where the lies are and what they are and why they're formulated because people have been lying to him forever. Tony also needs to have some grace that he does not have where he needed to realize, okay, things did not work out with my daughter and Jackie, and I'm angry about that, but I still need to help him on the road to something better. He needed to care about both of them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And he couldn't do that. He couldn't separate like, oh, you fucked around on my daughter and I hate you now and you're a fucking bastard, whatever. But he couldn't separate that from like, okay, but you're still my best friend's son and I have to figure out something for you even though I don't like you right now. I have to make sure that you're not going to be in danger. And he didn't figure that out. And that is on Tony. Yeah. Yeah. And the hypocrisy. The kids see the hypocrisy. Jackie sees it. He's not the smartest. He's probably the stupidest of the, <laughs> the three kids, quote unquote, that Tony is caring for in this season. But Tony says to him, what are you doing here? When he spots him at the casino. And Jackie's response is correct. You're here. Yeah. The episode, you know, Tony's walking around with a gun. In the same episode, he takes the gun away from Jackie and kicks him for it. The same gun, the thirty-eight. It's like, he sees this. He has eyes and ears. He's not a total, he's not like mentally disabled. He's watching this hypocrisy in real time. And Tony's supposed to be this role model for him. And when he mimics that, he just gets lectured. And the lectures are meaningless. Because he's, mod he's modeling off of what he sees and what he knows. And what he see wants to be. But Tony is just not able to grasp that because that would involve diving in on his own behavior. And these guys have to constantly lie and deflect and lie to themselves and lie to each other. That's yeah. Good point. Mm -hmm. Tony is in denial about all three kids, I think, at some level that we've already we've covered Jackie. With AJ, he's very dismissive of any approach that he sees as too soft, including the kid needs to talk to a therapist. 
He's dismissive of that. In spite of the fact that he talks to a therapist, Tony doesn't like that for other people. Mm-mm. He doesn't like. He's he's very like down on it. It's a weird thing, and because he can then keep it, and he also keeps his own therapy a tightly guarded secret. Um, similarly with Meadow, I remember last season. I think the episode is uh, full leather jacket. Carmela is dealing with the fact that Meadow's going off to school, and there's going to be at least at some level some form of separation. And I watched that episode, I was like, Tony's not dealing with this, and he's not ready for it. So sure enough, Meadow brings a, a half-black, half-Jewish kid back to the house to like watch a movie, and Tony fucking freaks out, because he has done none of this work yeah. about the, the daughter is going to separate from you, as all kids do, um, just as all kids rebel. So no, Tony, part of it is that he's not prepared for any of this. Not a good time for the April family. Just a really rough, I feel, but you know, by the end of season three, I feel most bad for Rosalie. You want to give her some shit as a, as a parent, but what chance did she have with this? Uh, you know, there's only so much she can do, and Jackie, of course, but Rosalie's just in such a shitty spot by the end of the season, and the fall of the April family is not glamorous. It's not pretty. It's rough. I almost feel like the the April family sort of reminds me of like Polonius, the Polonius family in Hamlet, where it's just like their fates are tied to Hamlet's family, and they're like dying on the vine because <laughs> things in Hamlet's family are so toxic. It like you know kind of destroys this family, like just sort of as a, a side effect. And yeah. you're just watching that in slow motion between Jackie, Jackie Jr., Rosalie, Richie, anybody with the April last name It's just fucked. The longer they hang around the Sopranos. Mm. Yeah, in the last sequence at the restaurant, Junior and Tony talk briefly, and that is seen as a harbinger of the downfall of this whole thing. It's like, oh, if Jackie were still alive and his kid, his kid had died, would have had a round around the uh, line around the block. Now, so it's yeah, it's kind of got this grim quality of the whole the whole affair coming apart. Anything else to say about Jackie? He's always a dumb fuck. <laughs> then you almost drown in like three inches of water. The penguin exhibit. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Good high five, James. Right. Kid was always a dumb fuck. <laughs> well, I think it's time for another top three. I'm hungry for it. Top three. Top three. Yeah. Drum solo. Drum solo. We've never had a drum solo before, I don't think. It's amazing how we're still managing to... (laughs) The budget on this show has gotten out of hand. (laughs) I'm hungry for it. Let's do some food moments. Oh, yes. These are moments that are either centered around or about food, or we even qualify moments that happen while while food is present. It doesn't necessarily have to be about the food, but that's the idea. And we're going to stick to our format. Jordan, would you like to start us this time? I will. Uh, Okay, so we're going to do food moments. So I'm going to go with my number three uh, without explanation, correct? Yes. Number three, no explanation, are ketchup packets and Tic Tacs, Pine Barrens. (laughs) My turn? Yeah. All right. Uh, A few... (laughs) Food moments, a few honorable mentions. One is mix it with the relish, the packets and everything yep, okay, from Pine Barrens. Yep. Um, the Whitman sampler from another toothpick that they bring <laughs> to the guy. Very good. Uh, Rosalie's tiramisu 
in university and that mm-hmm. dinner where you see the hypocrisy of the guys just looks good. Almost time for turkey sandwiches! And he is risen. And the last and my favorite of the honorable mentions is Ralphie shows Jackie the butter trick in Telltale Mutzel. The bit with making pasta. It's yes. the one good bit of advice that Jackie probably gets this season. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, number three, take your fucking dinner, Pine Barrens. Uh, Gloria throws the London broil at Tony's head. That's my number one. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll discuss that then. Number three for me, and this might not technically qualify, but I'm going to make it qualify, and I'll, I'll explain it when I explain why. But Carmella taking shots during Pro Shilavushka. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my number two is from the Telltale Mutzadel. Uh, it is AJ Soprano's custom order on a pizza, which, uh, according to this, is a double meatball, pepperoni, sausage, peppers, onions, extra mozzarella. Ooh, that pizza never hurt nobody. Uh, I have. I'm going to show this to Jordan. He sees the evidence. That is also my number two. My mm-hmm. pizza never hurt nobody. Yeah. Telltale mozzarella. My number two food moment: Thanksgiving dinner. He is risen. Mm-hmm. The whole. And of course, already mentioned, my number one food moment would be the uh, side of beef for that beautiful steak that is hurled at the head of Tony Soprano in Pine Barrens by Gloria Trello. My number one is uh, Four Stitches, Ruined Dinner. The flashback in Fortunate Son episode three where Tony passes out. Holy shit, how did that not get on anyone else's list? Wait, which one? Four Stitches, Ruined Dinner. The flashback in Fortunate Son. Yes, 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 yes. Wow. I'm embarrassed because I might have put that on my list. I don't know how that one escaped me. But I'm not mad about my number one either. Number one, Ralphie's apology in He Is Risen. Tony's having his meal. Oh, yes. And Ralphie has to come into the empty Vesuvio and apologize. Mm. Yeah. I had an honorable mention that I should have led with. I apologize. I just see it now. Um, Uncle Ben's rice and Gabagool. (laughs) Of course, from Prochai Labushka. (laughs) Uh, well, th- this is an embarrassment of riches, the food moments of yeah. this season. Yeah. Yeah. In abundance. So, well, yeah, let's go around with our number three. Yeah, let's start with one, because one of ours was shared with an honorable mention and my number three, which was ketchup packets and Tic Tacs. Yeah. And your mix it with the relish is the same uh, moment. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, Pine Barrens is one of the best episodes in, I guess, the series, but certainly it's in this season. it's a big fan favorite, too. Big fan favorite. That is such a funny moment, and it's, um, it's a very funny food-centered <laughs> moment, I think I've never enjoyed Christopher and Polly more than I have in this episode. Their relationship has been so unique and uniquely conflicted in this season that this is a nice diffusion of yeah. their whole situation. Being trapped in this survival situation together, it's played for laughs, yep. and uh, things kind of work out for them after this. Yep, the uh, I, and it's got it's so as you guys said, it's a favorite. It's so quotable. At one point, I think Polly says. What's your plan? Sit here and eat ketchup packs? <laughs> it's so funny the way they do it. Also, what's funny is how hungry they are because before they did this, they didn't eat. And what they're talking about is possibly getting going to Morton's and getting a steak. Yeah, they talk about really delicious food. Roy Rogers, too. Right. So possibly getting a steak, which Tony then has to forego to go get them out of the woods. Yep. And Gloria throws the steak at him, which we're going to talk about, too. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that, my, was my, that was my three. Yep. And your three, Paul, was... My three, uh, maybe I should wait on because it's Jordan's, Jordan's number Jordan. one. We'll yeah, talk yeah, about we'll it. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. Yeah. My number three was Carmella doing shots at <laughs> Livia's yeah. wake because of what it leads to. That's fucking awesome, That's Chris. one of my favorite moments in that episode. 
And I'll say it counts because it happens while Artie is preparing to serve dessert. <laughs> so it's te- technically food is involved. They're at a they're at a funeral. There's a big array out. Artie is catering, so it fucking counts. Carmela, while all this scene is going on and you're getting these very forced bullshit responses from people about Livia who have been forced into this quote-unquote California bullshit, as Tony calls it, when Janice mentioned the idea of people sharing the remembrance of Ma. <laughs> and every so often we, we're we cutting around while whoever is talking is talking and we're seeing the polite, withdrawn responses from the guests and Carmela must take four or five shots of pure alcohol, wondering if she should say something. And you can see it. And there's so much going on with her in those little moments, just tossing back a shot, tossing back a shot, tossing back a shot. And eventually she sets a glass. Now, this is such a crock of shit. Right before Artie is going to open his mouth about um, the, yeah. the, the nonsense. Right, of, the, the, the fire stuff. And, yeah. and just goes on one of the most epic rants about Livia and the climax of that episode, which is, this is your legacy. This is what you've left behind, Livia. This ruin, this misery, and it gets Hugh fired up. I don't know how many goddamn Christmases I don't know begin to count. One of the great Hughes. Who are you? The Minister of Propaganda. <laughs> Excellent. From Excellent. beyond the grave, even. This is my house. Yeah. So Carmela just owns it, and I counted it because I love that moment. Yeah. In an otherwise very dark episode. Great. And oh. probably the best scene from that episode, sure. really. Yeah. Uh, they did a cool thing, too, at least once with it, where she would down the shot before they would cut to maybe outside mm-hmm. when Artie's throwing stuff away. So it builds. It builds that tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, how incredibly high Christopher and Adriana are during that <laughs> entire sequence is amazing. <laughs> Um, my number two was, in fact, the mozzadelle. It was, it was the, it was the pizza from the Telltale mozzadelle, right? Mm. So this order, which sounds delicious, again, is a double meatball, pepperoni, double meatball, pepperoni, sausage, peppers, onions, extra mozzadelle, extra mozzarella. My pizza never, never hurt nobody. Yeah. <laughs> Very funny. Also, I just love that pizza order. I love that that is how they get caught. I think that title, some would say too cute by half. I actually think it's just right. I think it's really fun. Yes. I agree. I also chose it, and I think it's different. There are these different food moments, some about uh, what's happening in the scene, some about how, in the case of Tony and Ralphie and the apology, how you situate an apology. Here, it's telling the story, as Jordan said, with the pizza, because it's the telltale mozzarella, it's the order that gives up AJ. And it's just, the scene is obviously so fun. I love the dialogue. I love the way it's shot. Yep. Everything about it. It's so playful and fun. Yeah. And Lady Gaga. Yep. Lady Gaga. The Lady Gaga. The Lady Gaga, she appears. My number two is Thanksgiving dinner, and he is risen. For a couple reasons. One, the food just looks great. I want to be at the Soprano Thanksgiving someday. And, and oh, not, not the April Thanksgiving? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, what a, that was sad. But yeah, they did a great job of presenting it. I, you felt for those ten minutes that you were in their house, the football's on, they're all hanging out watching the game. So, And, and the food itself just looked terrific. So that's why that... One of the reasons why the moment is. I'm also a shameless Aaron Arkaway fan. That character is hilarious to me. Janice's narcoleptic, (laughs) born-again Christian lover slash music partner. (laughs) And because we were at that Thanksgiving dinner as the audience, we were privy to Jackie April coming in to ask Meadow out on a date. And have you heard the good news? (laughs) 
he is risen. He is risen. Dead serious delivery. Awkward silence. And then, of course, almost time for turkey sandwiches. Throwing a fucking <laughs> grape at him, waking him up. Tony having fun. You felt it. You felt like you were at that dinner. You know what it feels like to be in a big environment like that for Thanksgiving. And it just brought you, it sucked you in. And I appreciated being sucked into the Soprano Thanksgiving dinner for ten, whatever 10 minutes it took in that episode. Sure. Uh, and then my number one, which I also share with, I think, Paul's number three, is this mm-hmm. correct? Is the uh, stake that is thrown at Tony's head uh, by Gloria Trillo in Pine Barrens. Um, it, it, it almost made, like, one of my most memorable moments of the season as well. I just, like, it. it is the thing that really makes Tony realize that this needs to end, that this is a dangerous situation. And because of the show's relationship with food, that is the language that's being used to communicate that, right? Mm-hmm. Because remember, it's not just funny that she's throwing a steak at his head. Meat has a significant role on this show, the symbol of meat, uh, of food, of um, what happens with sex and food and your mother and your lover and all that being tied together psychologically as this thing is literally hurled at Tony's head. It's also a huge side of beef that Johnny Boy is carving into when Tony passes out. Exactly right. Also, uh, Soprano's fun fact that I think we mentioned on the show is that the director of Pine Barren, Steve Buscemi, is the one that actually throws the side of beef at Tony's head. Right. It was one of those deals actors have have this problem. You hear about this a lot. Yeah. We have to like throw water in somebody's face or throw something at somebody, and you miss several times, right? So I think Steve Buscemi had to just take it and... Yeah, Chuck. That's as so the story goes. I love that. Yeah, but a, a great moment, and um, in particular, not to take anything away from Gloria, Tony's face after the meat hits him, and he turns to look because James Gandolfini communicates so many complicated emotions in that moment of this won't happen again, and I I, I understand now. Mm. You know, mm. I chose it for my number three, but I can't add to what you guys just did. That's perfect. I love that moment. I love the import of it, the question of meat. And there's just like a little tag where it, there's a, it probably cuts back to Chris and Paul. He's stuck in the woods, and Tony goes over to Junior's house, and Junior says, You've been eating steak. Just, like, <laughs> <laughs> just that little bit. I just think I love that. Now that we just mentioned that Bobby moment, I want to have a retroactive honorable mention in uh, one of the episodes. How many White Castles did you have? I can smell them. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I swear. Retroactive honorable mention, too, for the, uh, I think it's balled up bits of Italian bread that Meadow is throwing at Junior <laughs> at the end of the Army of yeah, One. Is yeah, that yeah. correct? Yep, yeah. yep, My number one was Ralphie's apology in He Is Risen. Tony, he looks like a king in that moment. And I mean that in, like, the classic fantasy sense. It's like fucking, what's, uh, uh, in... Return of the King, when he's just... The, the King of Gondor, when he's just, like, fucking slopping all that shit down while Pippin is singing. Mm, yeah. uh, he's just sitting there, eating his food. Tony eating at Vesuvio. That's his place. That's his that's his home. That's where he's most strong. And he's just projecting such strength there. You see Paul and Silvio, like, royal guards by the door. There, but not paying attention, but within earshot also. And Ralphie has to humble himself. And Tony... Doesn't invite him to sit. You want something? He's just silent. And he puts his fork down. The boss has put his fork down. And you have his full attention. And you have to humble yourself. And Tony's just kind of coaching him along. Oh, for what? I disrespected the Bing and the girl. That's all he has to say. Yeah, it's an incredible scene. It's a, it's a, it's a remarkable scene. And it ends with Tony 
not saying thank you for saying that or I appreciate it. We're good, Ralph. Thank you. This yeah. was good. Picks up his fork, takes a anything else. <laughs> Rough. Yeah. Ralph so, gets nothing of what he wants in that scene, and Tony gets an ultimate display of power. Correct. And for that reason, it just stuck with me, and it's a symbol of Tony as boss and how good he is at it and how cemented he is. Yeah. This is also a little bit of wishful thinking, and I, I know it's not quite this, but, like, I hope that Ralph got to feel just for one second how that girl probably felt, like, her whole life. Mm. You know? Mm. Yes. Yes. Oof. Great point. Great point. Another retroactive honorable mention because it didn't come up in our discussion. But let's not forget Artie's very awkward dinner date with Adriana during his midlife crisis uh, date. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> goes for the hands. She gets up and goes to the bathroom. Oh, poor Artie. So, yeah, food moments. A lot of them. Always a lot of great food moments. And it, it is so central to the show and the aesthetic of the show and the environment of the show. Yeah, you can't even cover them all. I just thought of another one I didn't mention. I'll try to work it in later. But yeah, there's this, there's so much stuff with food on this show. So my number one food moment is uh, Unfortunate Son. Yeah. Uh, four Stitches Ruined Dinner. If it weren't a food moment, it would probably be a moment for me. Mm. It's the it, it's the best psychological insight that the show has had in the way that it's dramatized. Um, the flashback improves on the look from Down Neck. That's mm-hmm. one thing. Never having before seen Livia sexualized mm. like this. Mm. Um, as Jordan was mentioning earlier with the take your fucking dinner sequence, sex, meat, bringing home the bacon, all this stuff, it came together and it's it was obviously too much for Tony at the time. And watching it still sometimes feels a little bit like, whoa, um, too much like information, too much coming at you. Uh, it's a powerful moment. The roast does look good, mm. but of course it comes after uh, the chopping off the pinky. And the way that it then cuts, it cuts into it from Tony at his mother's house with the food delivery still coming. Then it cuts right out of it into hit Tony give, explaining the story, telling the story to Melfi in therapy. I love the whole thing with Proust, Madeline, and Tony saying, this sounds very gay. I just think that's really <laughs> funny. And it makes for a compelling moment, and it really helped characterize that episode, Fortunate Son, which gives us the first taste also of the way in which this hereditary function is going to create problems going forward. So, Excellently articulated. I have one. I can't let it lie. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I don't know. It's not my number one moment. It should have been mentioned. I probably should have replaced the mozzarella with it. I don't know. Uh, the date nut bread, guys. Tracy's date nut bread, the first Ooh, offering to Tony yeah, in university. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't. I I could have put it in great moments on the show, but I have I have better stuff to talk about in university. But that it's specifically that they choose date nut bread, something that like I can't think of something more alien to the world of a stripper. Like when you think of strippers in that line of work, then something as wholesome and specific mm. as date nut bread. It's not banana bread. It's not you know. It's date nut bread. This is something. Maybe all this girl had was this recipe that would even like connect her to like a home life in a way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And this is what she offers up. It's an incredibly sad, specific choice, uh, and it's it's a food moment. Yeah, it's it makes me sad even thinking about it. And great button at the end of that scene after she walks out of your shot. Tony just looks at Sylvia and goes, "Bread." <laughs> yeah. Tony says in that scene also. He says, "I have a family, and they give me things." And in the sequence just after. Silvio picks Tracy up and beats her. They cut to the dinner where Rosalie has made this beautiful tiramisu. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of world in order 
as they see it. Like we can keep we keep these things separate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about Tracy just now. So this just makes for a good segue because I want to talk about our antagonists this season or one of many potential antagonists. We got Joey Pants, Joe Pantoliano as Ralphie. Great character, ultimately much more sophisticated and complicated than Richie as our antagonist. And more dangerous. More dangerous for that reason specifically. And he is cool. <laughs> Not in the sense that like, oh man, what a great guy. He's awesome. <laughs> but I mean, he's a cool character for this show and in yes. this universe and Joey Pants does a great job with him. Ralphie, he comes in very subtly. They drop him in as if he's always been there. They allude maybe he spent some time down south in Miami, but he's a part of the April crew. He's ambitious. He's an earner. He dresses well. And Peekaboo, he comes out in university, and you see him for... You you really finally get who this guy is. Thoughts on Ralphie, Joe Pantoliano. And, of course, the very interesting choice. We talked a little bit about how this show in season three did not conclude as cleanly as one and two, but you also need to do that if you're having a prolonged run. They break their formula in what they did with Richie. He comes in at a particular point, one or two episodes into season two, causes havoc, causes chaos. It comes to a boil and Tony has to, and he ends up getting killed for a reason outside of Tony's, control but it's cleaned up in that sense ralphie looks like things are gonna go that way but then gg blows a gasket on the shitter and tony has to make it work very interesting dynamic thoughts on ralphie and his trajectory from top to bottom here it is complex it's it's one of the things i remember not liking about season three when i first watched it i think because i wanted them to stay with that form i wanted it to be maybe more uh, predictable, but the Sopranos never wanted to do that. They didn't want to repeat themselves, they, which allowed them to stay surprising. So it's a gutsy choice, among other things, to make it so that at the end of this season, you have to keep this guy around. He's useful and even reliable, even though what part of what Tony does is kind of pawn this shitty job of taking care of Jackie Jr. off on Jackie Jr.'s mother's boyfriend. <laughs> so there's that, but I think it's a it was a great choice um joey pants does such great work i think as you said peekaboo he comes out in university ralphie complicates the mask question he and he compl- um he complicates the faces question because richie i don't think really had the uh the convincing face of a charming guy ralphie does ralphie dresses the part which we've spent a good deal of time on and it, it, as you, as Jordan said, I think that does make him more dangerous. It also has made him more fun in a lot of ways. He does still have a lot of funny moments. Um, he's a very entertaining character to watch, um, which is great because he would be too vile um, <laughs> to, to stomach if he weren't. Richard Prill was up front for moment one. What mine is not yours to give me. I'm old school. He, he tells you flat out what his deal is and he sticks to it. He just butted heads with Tony and didn't have that respect for Tony as a commander. Ralphie's much more insidious because he can sit at the table with you. I think of that dinner scene in, I think it's another toothpick where he's just hanging out with 
Tony, Johnny Sack, Gigi, and they're all just hanging out having dinner. It's like, oh, that's a fun table to be at. Oh, and then he's going to maul a stripper to death yeah. in brutal yeah. fashion who's carrying his kid. Yeah. I, I, I hate to say this. Like, uh, you know, I think Ralphie's my favorite character in season three. And I, I have to, like, temper that with, like, I have to reconcile with what he does in university. Uh, and by favorite, I don't mean I endorse his behavior. Right. I mean, he's my favorite thing to watch. Mm-hmm. For exactly what Paul has said, for, you know, the, the fact that he has these two faces, he's duplicitous, and that makes him interesting. Uh, he has an interesting way of dressing. He's not quite what we've seen before from really anybody. And, yeah, you're right that there is this really, dis- you know, this, this clear distinction from the season two villain, Richie Aprile, in that Richie wanted what's his. Ralphie wants everything. You know, and there's that that distinction too. Um, Ralphie is a great character. He adds incredible interest to every scene he's in. Uh, he's able to play it every way, and he reminds me of another character. Um, in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? There's a character George Nelson, George Babyface Nelson. Mm. Uh, it describes this guy's a real live wire, right? <laughs> um, Ralphie's like a manic depressive, basically. He's got these high highs and these low lows, and each one of his masks have that. You know what I mean? So it's like, this guy is like, I, he's so dangerous. He's so, you don't know what you're going to get from him. You suspect it before university, it's confirmed for you then, and you fear it'll get worse. But every time you see Ralphie, he's like a different Ralphie. It's yeah. like, which one am I getting? And you're right. It's like, this is a guy that changes his mask so frequently, you wonder what the fuck is underneath. You described him, Jordan, in one of the episodes. I can't remember which one of our episodes you mentioned this. It was early on in season three. But it stuck with me because it's, A, not a word I would have ever thought of to describe him. But is it, it cute? Cute. The word is cute. And it's yeah. also a very peculiar word to use yes. about a gangster. He's cute. But it fits. He's cute. There's something cute about this guy. Yes. That's so eerie. It is, the, <laughs> cute, the cuteness is disarming. Yeah. Because in, he may be the most dangerous one. Uh, you know. Mm. But he's so quaffed and he's so... Yeah, cute. And you must also... We must also reconcile with that. These other bad men also think of him as being, like, a bad guy. Like, it's agreed, like, Ralphie's not a good guy. Like, fuck that guy. Like, even amongst other bad men, they're like, oh, Ralph. Mm. Jeez. And it's tough because ultimately a lot of what happens in this life that's depicted on the show is it's about the dollar. And another way Ralphie's dangerous is we're told and shown several times this guy is a big earner. He right. is a go-getter. He brings it. He, he, he does the most important thing you can do in, in the mob life, something Chris struggles with shortly after being made. He fucking brings the envelopes, man. That makes it tough. That complicates things every time. Right. That's a consistent character trait throughout this whole season is Ralph is a money machine. Yep. It could be the most important factor. I mean, because in season two, it's briefly mentioned a couple of times, but you didn't need to mention it too much that whatever Richie was doing, usually whatever stunt it was, it was either dumb, like a waste of time, or a problem, yeah. something that could cost them money. I think the best idea that he had was the red uh, things instead of the blue. Uh, <laughs> the coolers, yeah. The coolers. The coolers, like, fuck blue. Like, I was like, yeah, that's probably true. But other than that, like, fucking waste of space. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Ralphie's, getting... Ralphie's not trying to figure out how to sell coke off the garbage routes. Right. He's raking it. He's, he's a big picture guy. It's no conversation yeah. about Ralphie can have the dialogue that Silvio had in season two. There's nothing to gain by keeping Richie around. Mm-hmm. Opposite. Yeah. 
Anything else about Ralphie? Uh, he's I, probably he's probably going to be on a few character lists. Yeah, so. he's a political player yeah, too. Yeah. I mean, he he's able to talk with people as high status as Johnny Sack and also yuck it up with the boys down low. It's just a it's a good all round character. He's probably most similar to Tony in that in that he can create interesting scenes with any other character. I'll say this about not Ralphie but Joey Pants. Joe Pantoliano, am I saying that right? Joe Pantoliano. Yeah. Joe Pantoliano is not only in this and other like good stuff where he's good. But, like, distinctive and even, like, iconic stuff. Like, he's in The Matrix. Yeah, he's Cypher. in He's in the... Yeah, he's in the he's in uh, the Goonies, which is one of my favorite movies. He's in Fugitive and U.S. Marshals, Fugitive which are both good. He's good in both. And, yeah, and he's good in this stuff. And uh, this is his career best. Yeah, This is his is. best work. And I, I'm, I'm just... I, I can't say enough nice things about this work that he does. I mean, he plays a total piece of shit, as we've talked about. But he, he himself is a great humanist. And, um... Does great work. I loved reading, I think, an interview that Jordan sent us about his character and the deliberate yeah. choice of the ascots that he could see this character's face, uh, the faces that he wore. And uh, so I'm just very appreciative of that. Yeah. He's a smart guy, Joe Pants. And also very funny. He's a down to earth, funny guy that you'd love to know. I also have to mention he's my favorite character, bit character, in Congo. <laughs> I'm just... Thank you. Please watch Congo. <laughs> Thank you, George. Amy, good gorilla. Good gorilla. <laughs> How much are they paying you? Uh, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned it. Let's segue into it. Johnny Sack. I want to, We don't have to spend a ton of time on him because he's still more of a side character at this point. But elevated for season three. Johnny Sack is a once or twice per season character in one and two. And we have this interesting development in season three, which... I think peaks in the finale with his conversation with Paulie outside Vesuvio. Yeah. Johnny Sack moves to Jersey. And not just Jersey. Eight minutes from Tony's house. He's right in Tony. He's in Tony's backyard. Interesting. If these guys weren't such good friends, I think this would be a bigger problem than it was initially. But Tony is wary, but takes him at face value. Oh, this is our family, and this is the Soprano family. But he notices Ralphie talking to him at the party, the homecoming, the... the, uh, Housewarming. The housewarming. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Housewarming party. So Johnny Sack's around and he's nosing. He's nosing a little bit. He says he's not going to stick his beacon, but he certainly gets involved in the Ralph thing with, you know, getting that apology to happen. And then at the end with Paulie. So I love Johnny Sack. I love Vince Curatola. I think the character has presented well the few times we've seen him before this, but this is an elevation and it, and it's an omen, I think, that the presence of the New York family is going to start playing a larger role in the show proper. Thoughts on Johnny Sack and the New York family? I don't have many. I think that's exactly it. Yeah. Uh, I just will say I really like that actor, and I was excited to see more of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's it, because it, some of it is a slow burn, but it's always such a pleasure to see Vincent Curatola play Johnny Sack. Could be a funny scene, could be a bit more serious. Uh, I like all those aspects of it. Also, even though he says, I'm not going to stick my beacon, and we see him move back and forth on that a bit, there is another sequence, I think, also in that same episode when he moves to Jersey, Employee of the Month, where they're talking about the Riverfront Esplanade by Newark on the TV, and this seems like a a joint effort mm-hmm. where the New York family that Johnny Sack is in will benefit from what's going on in the Jersey waterfront. Yeah. A lot of big things happening. A lot of setup for season four, I think, it feels like. And that's not a spoiler. That's just none of that gets resolved. It just sort of exists and it's on the plate. 
what's going to happen yeah. with Johnny Sack. We also meet Carmine Lupertazzi for the first time. He's the boss of the family, Johnny Sack's boss. Johnny Sack is sort of an underboss intermediary between Jersey and New York. So we get a little bit more sense of the structure going on over there. So interesting. I am excited to see where it goes in season four. And Vince Caratola is an awesome actor. So yeah, it's he's only going to go somewhere good. I think it's time for another top three. Top three. Top three. Top, top three. Oh my God. Oh my God, Paul. With the drums, I, I can't. I think we're getting better. Again with the yeah, drums. We got to be careful because that top three bullshit that we spew out is going to start sounding good if we don't fix it. <laughs> we should do one like professionally. <laughs> like have Denmark. One, have one produced. Like actual chords. We're going to go into top three quotes. I this is the hardest category this every is always time. the hardest I, I said this to you guys in our pre-show I could have done a top 10 quotes just from fucking Pine Barrens so <laughs> quotes is always tough but you gotta do it it's a very quotable show so you gotta have a quotes category yeah I think you're the only one that hasn't gotten to go first yet right I went no I went first for music you went oh, first for food I think Paul's gonna kick us off for quotes this oh I'm time. sorry okay great alright cool uh, I have a ton of honorable mentions Alright, uh, honorable mention, Polly. I'm telling you, they're poison! That's from Pine Barrens. Another quote from Pine Barrens is Chris saying, I'll leave you here, you one-shoe cocksucker. Uh, in second opinion, Furio says, stupid a fucking game. Perfect. Uh, in another toothpick, Sally, remember Mustang Sally? He says, oh, this guy I know, he fucks the lady whose house it is. I just always like, fucks the lady whose house it is. Major Zwingli, uh, Tobin Bell's character, tag on the scene in Army of One, one day at a time. Yeah. Uh, last honorable mention, Polly from To Save Us All from Satan's Power, the boss of his family told you you're Santa Claus. You're Santa Claus. <laughs> so shut the fuck up about it. All right. Number three quote. This is from Employee of the Month. This is Melfi. Hello, Kate. This is Jennifer Melfi. I know talking on the phone upsets you, <laughs> but I need to cancel our next appointment. Excellent. Mm. Very nice. I love that. My we got the we got the bells. We got the we church the bells. bells with we us. have to. We have our a, lucky church bells with it, us for Soprano Sunday dinner. It, it would not be a Sopranos podcast episode, particularly a retrospective, without the church on my corner, back on its bullshit. We love it. <laughs> <laughs> my my number three quote comes from Paulie in Pine Barrens. It's an exchange more than an individual quote. Tony is talking to Polly. It keeps cutting in and out. They're getting bits and pieces of each other. Tony's frustrated. He just came from Slava's meeting. Tells Polly that this guy they're hunting down was part of the Interior Ministry and killed sixteen Chechen rebels. <laughs> Polly, this is the and this is the exchange that I'm putting as my number three. Hangs up the phone. You're not gonna believe this. Guy, guy killed 16 Czechoslovakians. Oh, like, he killed 16 Czechoslovakians. Guy was an interior decorator. Chris says his house looked like shit. <laughs> so that exchange is my number three. My number three, one of the most obnoxious things I've ever heard on this show, comes... Well, I guess I'll do the quote first, right? Folks thought Hawks invented the genre with Scarface, uh. but Cagney was modernity. <laughs> Mooney was not, so I give the nod to William Wellman. That is, of course, Noah Tannenbaum and Prussia Lavushka. Number two quote is at uh, Chris's making ceremony, the after party at Vesuvio in uh, Fortunate Son. 
bit of an exchange here. The quote is, uh, it starts with Carmine Lupertazzi. He wants to say there's no stigma. And he says, there's no stigmata these days. For Christ's sake, Julius Caesar was an epileptic. The quote is Tony's response. I'm not an epileptic. Just that line of the way Gandolfini does it. My number two comes from Junior Soprano in He Is Risen. I have a lot of stuff from He Is Risen in this perspective. It's a great idea. But uh, he's recovering from cancer. Tony goes to see him, talks, fills him in on the Ralphie situation, and they're you know coming to the conclusion. Tony says, "I don't see an answer." And Junior says, "Quote: Who says there is one? That's what being a boss is. You steer the ship the best way you know. Sometimes it's smooth. Sometimes you hit the rocks. In the meantime." You find your pleasures where you can. Mm-hmm. Nice. I thought it was a very insightful and sweet moment from Junior, a character who is usually cursing or in, embroiled in some indignity. I thought that was a dignified... It was just cool to see that moment. I liked that quote. Yeah. Uh, my number two quote is from Polly and Fortunate Son. Uh, I think it's in the same scene that Paul's quote was just from. This is Polly. Uh, Polly Walnuts. You're a made guy now. It's your turn to make some real money. I get to relax a little. Your only problem in life now is you give me ten points you take every settle-up day. Other than that, you got no problem. My only problem in life? I gotta kick my points up to that man over there. And onward it goes, this thing of ours. When you think of all the headaches most human beings have in life, ours are all boiled down to only one. Not a bad deal, right? I enjoyed it because it sounded Shakespearean to me. Yeah. It had like this sing-song, almost verse quality. And Chris is like in a trance listening to Paulie talk about this. Like he's finally a part of this thing. This is the arrangement. And it actually sounds more poetic than anything Tony said during the actual making ceremony in the previous scene. Mm. Uh, and I like the way uh, I think, you know, Paulie does a hell of a job delivering the line. I think it's great. Well, I'm glad you guys have these thoughtful quotes, speaking of Shakespeare. Shakespeare, straighten it out. My number one quote from season three is Bobby Bocciolieri in Pine Barrens. One time, we went hunting. We saw a sign that said, Bear left. So we went home. <laughs> Love it. My number one quote is actually spoken twice in season three by the same character, and I'm so therefore I'm going to include both instances. But it is simply poor you, as delivered by Gloria Trillo, both at the Bronx Zoo and in a Morfu at the climax of that confrontation when Tony finally makes the connection and realizes what's happening. Poor you. Mm. My number one is one word. Uh, it's an exchange, or it's part of an exchange. It's this the very final line of employee of the month. Tony looks at Melfi and says, what, you want to say something? There's a, a tense pause, and then she just says, no. Oof. Nice. Yeah. Oh, I fucking love these. Awesome. Excellent quotes, guys. I love it. This retrospective is cooking along. It's cooking. Cooking. Cooking, baby. Like Artie Buco. Baby. Hey everyone, thank you so much. This was part one of our season three retrospectives. Join us in the next episode for part two, in which we're going to talk about the journey of the women in The Sopranos in more detail, particularly Dr. Melfi and Carmella. We're going to respond to some listener mail that we got, a lot of awesome comments and emails from our listeners. We're going to respond to those. And we're also going to continue our top threes, including top three characters and performances, top three moments, and top three episodes. You don't want to miss it. Sopranos Season 3 Retrospective Part 2. 
next episode. Thank you so much. Got myself a girl.